Hello, and welcome to the Cane Creek Cycling Podcast. I'm your host, Luke Bukowski, and you may have noticed that we have not done an episode in a while. That's a direct result of us being very, very busy lately. The global pandemic has triggered somewhat unexpectedly what many in the industry are calling a mini bike boom. And we at Cane Creek have been doing our best to keep up with customer orders and phone calls and emails, but it has left us all very, very busy. So thanks for your patience. Back in early August, I had a chance to sit down with our CEO and president, Brent Graves, and talk a little bit about the pandemic and the bike boom and discuss how it has affected Cane Creek. And it wouldn't be the Cane Creek Cycling Podcast if we didn't have an opportunity to sneak in a conversation at the end about some of Brent's favorite bikes. So stick with us. So I'm here today with Brent Graves, the president and CEO of Cane Creek. And unless you're listening to this from a cave, you've probably uh, noticed that 2020 has been a very unusual year for most of us. And uh, us in the cycling industry, that's been no exception. So Brent has offered some of his time today to talk about the pandemic and what effect that's had on Cane Creek, both expected and unexpected, and, and the biking industry as a whole. So Brent, thank you very much for joining us. Well, thank you. You know, you mentioned cave. Well, in a sense, we've all been in a little bit of a cave, right? Stay at home, lockdown orders, you know, staying in your office, staying, working from home. So it's sort of a cave in reality. It's like a cave with a little digital window that's constantly showing you something different, right? So if we can kind of go back to the spring when the city started shutting down and clearly this started to percolate and become a thing, what effect did you anticipate at first that that would have on Cane Creek and the cycling industry as a whole? Well, we really didn't know anything, right? No one knew what to expect. Now with 2020 hindsight, we go, oh, yeah, that was clear, but there was nothing that was very clear. The big concern, my big concern was people's reactions, their knee-jerk reactions, people, governments, organizations that would shut things down and prevent us from doing our jobs. Um, certainly, we're all concerned about getting sick or, in worst case, someone dying. Um, the infection rate here in North Carolina from the very beginning was relatively low. So our bigger concern was just being shut down because of circumstances outside of our control. So when we were back in March, we were running pretty much like normal, right? There wasn't really any impact on us directly. We don't have basically any suppliers in China, which was hit in the winter. So our supply chain wasn't affected. And we got into later March, it became evident that there was going to be some kind of stay-at-home order for the state of, of North Carolina. And um, we saw what was happening in the Bay Area of California and in Seattle, two areas, early hot spots, uh, where they just shut things completely down. And that was... The concern is seeing that replicated throughout the country or throughout the world. And lo and behold, at the end of March, the governor of North Carolina, where we're located, announced a stay-at-home order. And so at that point, we had no, no uh, option other than to shut down. So we were literally completely closed for two weeks at the beginning of April. At that point, we really didn't know what was going on, but we tried to maintain, you know, dare I say a trickle charge, you know, like we have a battery on a trickle charge. We had tried to maintain some ongoing meetings and discussions uh, so that things just didn't totally shut off. And from there, we started hearing about some bicycle retailers, particularly around the U.S., that were applying for or claiming essential business status because they said, hey, people need to get around 
and they're not going to use mass transportation. So a bicycle is a good alternative. Those bicycle shops were claiming to support that need. Then distributors who supply those bicycle shops were claiming the same essential business status. Um, that caused us to, to, to look into the essential business status ourselves. We uh, filed a, an application or request with the state, and uh, we found out that while that application is waiting for a determination, while we're waiting for an answer, we can operate as long as we operate safely, you know, social distance, masks, so on and so forth. So the second half of April, we started off really, really small. We had basically one-third of our workforce. Uh, we were alternating shifts, alternating groups of workers from one week to the next uh, for the second half of April, and it was really small. Then as we got into May, we started seeing, surprisingly, uh, an increase in orders, uh, demand. So we gradually scaled up our operation. Uh, pretty much all office staff, I say pretty much, basically all office staff working remotely. And operations, we found more of a routine uh, to get increased productivity uh, while we still weren't at 100% capacity by any stretch. So May started rolling, and we started hearing more and more about bicycle stores and shops around the U.S. and around the world having a run on, on bikes and parts. And um, we didn't see it immediately, but now looking back, it was okay. People can't go to yoga class. They can't go to the gym to lift weights. They can't you know, go to a movie theater past the time or go to bars or, or whatnot. So they were going, you know, crazy, if you will, cabin fever. What can I do? And the bicycle was one of the things that people chose. I also hear that outdoor equipment, camping, and, and so forth has also been on the rise. But, you know, we were seeing a lot of demand uh, coming through our retailers. And then, secondly, through our distributors, because people were going to bicycle stores looking for new bikes or looking to repair old bikes, bikes they haven't ridden in, in years, maybe. And uh, we just kept trying to ramp up, ramp up, ramp up. However, when you're in a situation where you go from completely shut down, like we were at the beginning of April, to trying to not only catch up to normal, but actually by the time we got to June and July, we're talking about double our business level. So going from zero to normal to double in just, well, basically six weeks, and on top of that, you've got a three or four month lead time. When I say three, month, three or four month lead time, what I mean is, from the day we place an order for raw materials or a part from a supplier, um, we won't see that part sometimes for 90 days or 120 days. Um, when we push and certain circumstances allow, sometimes we can see it 60 days. So when we're really turning the gas on big time in late May and June, you know, we're not going to get the stuff in June, right? right? It's going to be August, September, October. So we're you know, running and gunning, scrambling, trying to get whatever we can make adjustments. And um, it's, on one hand, it's stressful. On the other hand, it's a good stress, right? It's good stress when people, you know, want to buy your, your, your stuff. That's really good. But at the same time, there's only so much we can do. And what we've reiterated with particularly our guys on the supply chain side is, you know what? Do the best you can. If you do the very best you can, you know, it'll work out. And also our guys on the sales side, right? Because they're dealing uh, on the front lines with, with our customers, whether they be consumers bicycle retailers or distributors, and they're going, man, I got to have this now. I'm trying to build this bike. I'm trying to get this guy back on the road. Um, this guy wants to buy these cranks, whatever. 
And we want to satisfy every one of those as fast as we possibly can. However, there's only so much we can do. So don't bring it home with you. Don't stress out, right? Uh, we're, in, we're in a great business. Bicycles, you know, it's a great thing for people all around the world to get out and ride, enjoy, and get in shape. Um, we just can't lose sight of that and get so caught up into like, oh, well, we got people yelling for more product that we can't supply completely right now. Yeah, it's a it's a fortunate thing when I don't know what the latest numbers are, but there are a lot of people without a job, and we we we're hiring. Yes, yes. So just a couple of weeks ago, the rate I heard was twenty percent of Americans are unemployed. Twenty percent. It was like thirty million people. Uh, I lived in countries before that had a fraction of thirty million people. So you know, thirty million is a lot of people, and it's not just being unemployed uh, currently or. For a month or two, many of those jobs may never come back at all in the manner that they were previously, right? So people are going to have to find new jobs. So it's, it's a big deal. And it's really ironic because some industries, tourism, you know, movie theaters, so forth, um, they're getting hit massively in a bad way. And then people like us, right now, we're, we've got great business, right? And we hear guys making kayaks and canoes down the road here, they're doing really good business or tents or whatever. So yeah, it's really ironic, the discrepancy between one end and the other end in terms of the haves and have nots right now that the pandemic is dealing out to us. So far, Cane Creek has come through the pandemic in really good shape. However, with you know that, that magical 2020 hindsight everybody's always talking about, is there, it, is there anything we've, we would have done different in your opinion? That's a very good question. Uh, th- Everyone here has done a fantastic job. I mean, something that we have really learned and benefited from for the last three or four years is that we can adapt uh, and rise to a challenge again and again and again. Cane Creek had some dark days back in 2015, 2016, but we righted the ship, really got back on our game product-wise, organizationally, and there's, there's an underlying confidence uh, that we'll just figure out how to get it done. And while this one was scary in its own right, this one being the pandemic, uh, we just continue to just adapt and move forward. It's really, really inspiring to see at all levels, in all areas of the company, no matter where you go. Which is like, I just walked in this, this room here with, with a new challenge, <laughs> dare I say a problem, you know, that popped up. But, you know, it's like, well, that sucks, but okay, let's get after it. Yeah. We freaking just get after it and get it done, figure it out, right? Uh, no, no point in, in sit there and wallowing in misery or being frustrated. We're just going to act and move forward. And so, like I said, that's been really inspiring to see it really come to the to the surface again in this totally uh, unforeseen and never experienced before in our lifetime issue with with the COVID nineteen virus. You know, which that actually leads me into my my next question because clearly the pandemic and the virus are are unseen and unexpected. We've never seen this before, at least in our lifetimes, as you said. But the industry's seen booms before. And I, I'm guessing this one's a little more sudden. And I just want to see what your take is on, do you feel like this is a blip? Uh, do, you, do you think that the industry is going to continue to see a lasting boom as a result of this? Um, how does this compare to previous booms you've experienced? That, that, sort, of, that sort of thought. Well, there are a lot of questions in there. <laughs> yeah, I just threw it all at you at once. <laughs> so everybody in the bike industry is, is really talking about what could happen once things start settling back down. Now, when is that? I mean, some of us 
three or four months ago thought, yeah, by the end of summer, we'll be back to somewhat normal, right? Taking some extra precautions. But we got on planes not long after 911, right? Surely in three or four months, it's settled down a little bit. Well, that's not been really the case. I mean, we're learning to live with it, but it's definitely not normal. The consensus seems to be that this mini boom we're experiencing right now is going to taper. Um, however, a lot of people are getting reintroduced to bicycles or introduced to bicycles and cycling for the first time uh, out of necessity. Like I said earlier on, cabin fever, just wanting to get outside, do something with the family and, and unable to do those things they've done in the past. And so the belief, maybe it's optimism, but the belief is that there'll be some retention of this. Fast forward to whenever it's going to be, six months, a year, two years down the road or whatever, the number of people are going to go, you know what? Wow. We started riding as a family in the local state park or riding my bike to, to, to work or whatnot. And some of that stuff's going to stick. Some people are going to continue to, to do that because they see the benefits, whether it's be uh, not sitting in traffic, whether it's getting exercise, being healthier, whether it's doing something together with your friends and, and your family, whether it's getting outdoors, there's going to be some retention. What is that? Is that 5, 10, 20%? Any amount is more than we would have otherwise. So the bike industry is probably made up of, of people that are very optimistic. I mean, we're outside, riding bikes, on roads, in the woods, having a good time, you know, healthy, and just positively oriented. So we just tend to think that there will be other people that will continue to see the benefits and that will lift cycling overall for the, for the longer term. To what degree, we don't know. So I asked you to look at your crystal ball and look backwards. Now, kind of looking forwards with that same crystal ball, as, as business people, what lessons do you think we should be taking away from this experience, both as it relates to doing business in a pandemic in general and as it relates to, more specifically, the cycling industry? I think what we've learned or what's been reinforced is what I touched on earlier is it's really important to be flexible, to be agile. There are always going to be surprises increasingly in this world uh, than in the past. And so the more prepared you are to adjust, to go with the flow, uh, the better chance your business has not only to survive, but to thrive. So whether it be from our forecasting and our inventory to tools that we have for our sales guys to track uh, and manage incoming calls and emails, the more flexibility is built into a plan, uh, the better. And, you know, the old saying is plan, no matter how good it is, is guaranteed to change. And if you don't plan for change, then the plan is no good. And so just accepting, not even accepting, but embracing the idea that you got to be flexible. you got to be flexible. You've got to be able to turn on a dime. And that's something, too, we talk about internally. We have some big, big competitors, companies that are over a billion dollars in sales, and we cannot compete with them head on. The Shimano, SRAM, Foxes of the world, right? We cannot compete with them head on. They have marketing budgets that are many times our overall budget, many, many times. However, we have the advantage of our small nature to take that agile flexibility and use that as a strength. We can move. We can change. That product didn't work the way we wanted to. We can try this. We can introduce limited editions. We can change colors. We can be much more accommodating to, to different size customers. So things that we have an advantage on versus the big guys. And... Yeah, we just got to we got to realize that that's something that is is beneficial for us. And I think this pandemic has shown us again that that agileness is really really important. So with an increase in customer demand, you've got an increase in customer emails, calls, orders. 
How has Cane Creek sort of adapted to, to help manage that? That's been a very big challenge, a very big challenge. We pride ourselves in having some real capable, uh, compassionate, understanding, you know, people uh, up on the desk that uh, deal with the emails and the phone calls. And um, they, tr- they really, really work hard to spend a lot of time with every phone call and email. The downside of that is it limits how many people you can get back to in a given period of time. And then we start, started seeing emails and phone calls just skyrocket in terms of volume. And those guys were really, really, um, I won't say depressed, but they were stressing out because they saw the volume increase dramatically and they didn't want to drop off on the quality you know, service and getting back to people and walking through people through options or, or whatnot, um, whether it be new product or, or service or warranty. And we saw the volume increasing and we had to make some changes. So we started hiring some people. We also, uh, one big thing we did was we merged our marketing department and our retail department. We had seen uh, prior to the pandemic more and more interaction between those two groups. For example, uh, Craig, who handles our national accounts uh, on the sales side, repeatedly said, the more videos, the more how-to videos, the more how-to articles we can put on the website, uh, send straight to customers, um, the easier it is for them to understand our product, order our product, and the fewer emails and phone calls they have to make to us for things that they could already have answers to. So they started working more closely together, uh, Craig and Colin on the marketing side, and we saw that more and more and more. And then when we had the huge spike in phone calls and emails with the pandemic, it just caused us to take a step back and say, wow, we need to accelerate this cooperation, if you will, this uh, interdepartment collaboration. So that led us to say, wow, actually, what our sales guys are doing, they're not cold calling. They're not at calling people and say, hey, buy this thing. What they're effectively doing is they're marketing. You're right. They're just marketing in a little different nuanced way um, than the marketing guys. And so let's bring them really close together and under one one roof, if you will, uh, merge those two areas, those two areas being marketing and retail. And now we call it rider engagement. And uh, we've also, like I said, hired some people into that group. We moved some people around. We've got a fantastic customer-oriented guy that's been here for years, Brian Flack, and he's been working on our OEM side. But we're like, gosh, yeah, OEM is growing too, but we've got this huge increase in consumers uh, coming straight to us. we got to do a better job of answering them, servicing them. So we moved Brian from the OEM side over into this new rider engagement department. And like I said, we've hired a couple people. We also invested in some tools, some software, some phone systems to make their job easier in light of the increased phone calls and emails. And it's made a big, big difference. I mean, we were, (laughs) I won't mention the number of how far behind we were uh, on emails alone, but within weeks, I mean, like three weeks, three, four weeks, you know, it went down to where now we're getting back to everybody within what, I think less than 40 hours. So, um, you know, the new people, the, the new tools, and just the overall new perspective, if you will, right, of, the department's being merged. And then, like I said earlier, that we don't need to stress out. We just need to do the very best we can and, and, and understand that that will be enough. So one last question. I've been waiting forever to ask you this question. It's become the signature of this podcast. What is your favorite bike that you've ever owned? Well, my normal answer, which is really an honest answer, is, is the bike I rode last, the bike I rode yesterday, which is a really favorite bike of mine. Um, but 
the favorite, uh, I don't know if I can name a favorite. There are a lot because working for different bike companies over the years, leading product development teams, I've had my hands in a lot of projects. And many of those I'm really, really close to. I've got personal equity in in those bikes. But um, uh, there, there are several that come to mind. When I was about six years old, I got a sneak peek right before Christmas of a of a yellow huffy with a banana seat and that just um, just took me away for years right that bike eventually got modified in so many ways painted so many times but that was sort of the beginning of my infatuation with bicycles I had once uh, one bike I super regret selling it's a company called Santana they're known for many years for making tandems well back in the early 90s they made some hardtail mountain bikes and about 1991 or so, they made one of the most advanced mountain bike frames ever, uh, or at least at, at that time. It was a um, Columbus steel frame uh, made out of Nivochrome, uh, max tubing, so it had really crazy shapes to it and everything. And I had just started a new job. It was my first real job, and I was living hand-to-mouth. I mean, I was driving around the, the country visiting bicycle dealers, making sandwiches in my car because I couldn't afford to eat out and so forth. And here I go into this bike shop and um, I see this, this Santana Moda, Moda frame. I'm going, I got to have this frame. I got to have it. All the while I'm working for a, a major bike company, right? Which is not Santana. I got to have this frame. I can't afford this frame. I bought it anyway. <laughs> so um, that was a really, really beautiful bike, very rare bike. And um, when I started in product development for Diamondback out in California, then I was immersed in Diamondbacks. I mean, in product development, designing new frames, bringing to market a lot of bikes, um, bringing Diamondback back to aluminum frames, the dual response, the titanium bikes by Sandvik. So it was like, at the time, what am I doing with this Santana Moda, right? So a buddy of mine had a store in Ventura, California, and he sold it for me. And uh, yeah, I, re- I really regret that. That was a real favorite bike of mine, right? But I regret selling every bike I've ever sold. They're all special to some degree. But say one favorite, sure, I go through periods where right now this is my favorite road bike to ride, and then three weeks later it's another one, or my favorite mountain bike to ride. Uh, but I can go on and on. There's not a simple answer. And that's it, folks. If you like this episode, please leave us a review. It really helps people find the show. You can also follow us on social media at Cane Creek USA on Instagram and at Cane Creek Cycling Components on Facebook. We'll be back with another episode in October. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.